0: I mean, that's sort, of, well, that's sort of music. I mean, that's sort, of, that's sort of music. WKCR-FM New York, this is Jazz Alternatives. My name is Mitch Goldman. Tonight, we have, I always say this, I always say that it's a special program. (laughs) Kind of makes it sound like maybe it's not that special, but it really truly is. Well, to me it is. Maybe it will be to you. I think it will be. Because uh, that was our theme, which I don't always talk about. But it's uh, very particular to, tonight, to tonight's show, as a matter of fact. Uh, that's Dizzy Gillespie's composition, Bebop, and it's played by Ronald Shannon Jackson and the Decoding Society. It was on the album Decode Yourself. And uh, we don't go around talking about this all the time, but uh, you know, the fact that he plays our theme song might give you a little bit of an idea of the shaping influence that is music has had on this program over the years, and uh, two weeks ago, tonight, I had the uh, unhappy duty to share with you the information that um, he had passed away over that previous weekend, and um, in the wake of that, there's been a tremendous outpouring of uh, emotion and uh, sharing of experiences and memories and, uh, and hopes for the future and all kinds of other things that go along with the music. And uh, this program tonight, the next three hours, is gonna be a reflection of that. Uh, it's a deep focus program. If you're a regular listener here, then you know that this is something that we do from time to time, that uh, we have a guest in the studio and we play some live unreleased recordings of a musician who uh, our guest has some special knowledge about, and that is very much the case tonight. Melvin Gibbs is gonna be here, who's one of the most fascinating composers, band leaders in uh, music today. And he was part of that band, playing that theme that got us started tonight, Bebop, and he was part of the original Decoding Society, Ronald Shannon Jackson's band and uh, he'll be joining us in just a bit but I want to play a little bit of music for you first. We have a phenomenal collection of recordings tonight that you've never heard. You've never heard. Unless maybe you were in London in March of 1983. You might have heard this performance. If not, this is gonna be new. this That's just this first recording. But We've got a bunch of very exciting things for you. So Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this, and then we're going to get Melvin Gibbs in here and uh, put Ronald Shannon Jackson in deep focus. So this is the Decoding Society. Uh, Almost the same version of the band, a little bit different as on our theme, Bebop, but uh, close to the same period of time. March of 1983, it's in London at a really cool venue, the Roundhouse. Which is pretty much what it sounds like—a round house, a big, good size house. But uh, it's one of the favorite, uh, long-standing venues in North London. It's in Camden, and um, it's a big venue. For um, might uh, surprise some people nowadays that uh, this band was playing there, but. Um, Hopefully, that's something we're going to tell you a little bit about because they did play to lots and lots of people. The band is Henry Scott on trumpet, Zane Massey playing a variety of saxophones and flute, Vernon Reed is the guitarist, the basses are the Reverend Bruce A. Johnson, and our guest tonight, Melvin Gibbs. Ronald Shannon Jackson is the band leader playing the drums. So we're going to take it to the Roundhouse. And uh, you got a whole lot of very exciting music and information coming your way tonight on WKCR. music that you have never heard and I will say I'll go one step further and say you've never heard anything remotely like that unless you were at some gigs by Ronald Shannon Jackson in the Decoding Society in the early 80s Um, no band sounded like that before or during or since and uh, that's what we're talking about tonight and uh, we shared the sad news Two weeks ago tonight of the passing of Ronald Shannon Jackson, but uh, his music's still with us. And also with us is the ba- one of the two bass players on that gig and composer, band leader, Melvin Gibbs. Good evening. Melvin, welcome back, man. Well, thanks. It's been a minute. I'm glad to be back up here. <laughs> yeah. Too, too, too darn long. And... Um, I didn't really say this at the top of the show, but uh, we've got a bunch of things that we're planning around this music, and there's uh, a lot a lot that has not yet been said. We're going to try to cover as much of it as we can. And um, so, yeah, you're in the right place. You um, are in exactly the right place. We're here with you till 9 o'clock tonight. That recording was made at the Roundhouse in Camden, part of London, March of 1983. I haven't asked you this question. Do you have any recollection of that performance? I
1: vaguely remember the performance. If I remember correctly, that was also when we recorded the barbecue dog record and uh, a whole another record that kind of disappeared and got some of it ended up on taboo. But there's like a floating album in there, some pretty great stuff that somebody needs to resurrect. Yeah.
0: Well. Th- was there like a working title for that?
1: Uh, for the Disappearing Album? Yeah. I don't remember. Because it was all for the same record, so you know, we just recorded right. a bunch of stuff, so I don't know what the other one. They were just yeah. the, sitting, the sitting tapes.
0: <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, that's something I want to hear more about. But um, Roundhouse, I've been to the Roundhouse. It's an it's a unusual room. It's a big room. It's, it's a, round. It's round. <laughs> which... Acoustically speaking, not necessarily the friendliest environment for an electric band.
1: No, I mean, I vaguely, I'm trying to remember because I've been in that venue since then, and I'm kind of
0: like, you know, it's va- wood. Yeah. I, I'm picturing like an older wooden, yeah. round building. It's in Camden on uh, Chalk, Chalk Farm Road, yeah, and um, yeah. I mean, it was, it was,
1: it wasn't. I, I, Ironically enough, it wasn't the worst sounding place we ever played. I mean, the tapes aren't terrible I mean the thing in, in Europe, you have these weird venues that are either designed for classical music or they're designed for I don't know soccer hooligan recording sessions or whatever. They just sound real like Wah. yeah it
0: yeah. was it was a persistent challenge, yeah, getting anything approximating the sound of that band yeah and uh it was could be pretty hit or miss yeah. But, you know, that was a good gig, actually.
1: I mean, it's funny listening to those tapes because, you know, it's there's a lot of music going on and a lot of interplay. It's really interesting, you know. I'm going to pull a few more things from that session because I don't remember what's what. I I had the good fortune to actually listen to some of that stuff, and I was like, wow. I was like in the house laughing, <laughs> like, wow, this stuff is pretty great. You know?
0: And I, I think it holds up. I mean, we can't help the fact that our ears have heard a lot of different things since then. Yeah so it doesn't strike me the way that it struck me at the time, but it still sounds incredibly rich and powerful.
1: Well, it's interesting because, I mean, even the things that are really 80s about it almost make it more interesting because it puts a different context on it, you know, like all the slap bass and all the crazy stuff. It's kind of like to hear that kind of composing with that set of instruments is, like, pretty unique. I mean, you can truly say... you. I was listening to that music and I can truly say, well, you know what, I actually haven't heard anything like else like this. You know, it's it's pretty unique, you know, thing here.
0: It seemed like at the time to me, I'm you know, I was around for a lot of this yes, stuff. You, yes. But uh, you know, you Were you have, on that trip actually? No, I wasn't there. Yeah. But um you have a perspective having yeah. been in the band. I have the perspective having been in the audience, yeah. which might be very different, but um, As a fan of this kind of music at that time, there was a kind of trajectory coming out of, you know, everybody talks about Miles' children, Mm -hmm. but actually you could even go back before that a little bit, maybe Tony Williams and then coming through into when this band was starting and Mahavishnu Orchestra finishing up and uh, Weather Report was happening at this time and all these other things, but even then this was this was extending that but but a significant departure at the same time. Yeah, it was a pretty unique thing because it
1: wasn't and just sorry, I'm just moving your mic. You're missing bit your my that's mic that's a bit. Okay, my mic has been moved. Yes. Uh, in my opinion, it really I mean, you can reference a bunch of things. Obviously, you can reference, you know, Tony Williams. Obviously, you can reference uh other electric bands of the period, but it's such its own animal, and part of the reason is because it's such a weird combination of two streams of thought that kind of you wouldn't expect to come together. Because you have Shannon with his, you know, his set of experiences coming from Texas and all the traditional musics that he had played coming up, and you have this bunch of at that time kids who were essentially trained. This is you you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, well, me, you know, t- about that version of the Consulting Society in general, and me and Vernon, obviously, but also Zane uh, Massey, who was Cal Massey's son, and uh, Henry, Henry Scott, I believe, was on those sessions. Yeah. Uh, well, who was kind of a bit of a wild card because he wasn't part of the same Brooklyn crew that, you know, me and Zane and, and Bruce as well, even though Bruce wasn't from Brooklyn. We were all, we were all part of a scene that was kind of born out of what the New York jazz musicians, something that doesn't exist anymore because now everybody goes to school and they learn how to play jazz in school. When we were coming up, it was a lot of community activism. It was the 70s and everybody was trying to make the black community better and all of that. And one thing that the jazz musicians were doing to help the community was giving back by teaching the kids how to play so everybody in that band to some degree was trained in a kind of particular new york based jazz language and thought about music in those terms and in terms of that era of the 70s which was that real kind of spiritual jazz you know whether it was pharaoh saunders or Mahavishnu orchestra like you mentioned so there was this weird kind of like spiritualist current of another kind meeting this other weird kind of spiritualist current and kind of that kind of went all the way back historically to the beginning of jazz but all of us also had enough grounding in the traditions to be able to follow Shannon kind of all the way back down his trail so it was it was an interesting combination in that sense it wasn't really like uh Miles's band or even Ornette's band which was the closest
2: you know
0: right well that was another thing and it's really interesting to me To hear you describe that that way. Yeah. Because you didn't mention the obvious thing that all the critics talked about at that time oh, this is coming out of Ornette Coleman. Well, yeah,
1: yeah, it was and it wasn't. I mean, Ornette's Ornette's thing, it was in the sense that Shannon and Ornette are from the same town and they are from the same musical tradition. So, and Shannon was obviously in the band and obviously melodically, as far as his compositions, he picked up a lot of things. I mean, who knows if there are things that are native to Fort Worth or are there things particular to Ornette that he learned? I don't know. That that's one of those chicken or egg questions somebody from Fort Worth will have to answer. But uh I don't I mean, looking back on it, I personally was very influenced by Ornette because I actually spent a bit of time around him back then because I was uh you know, I was down with Alphonia Timms at the time and Alphonia was basically Ornette's protege at the time. So I did actually spend a lot of time in the melodic training courses I called it but the other guys didn't so much harm high school harm high school yeah I was kind of like the you know what would they call me like the exchange student or something <laughs> you know I was like I was the kid who came in flew in and flew back out again I wasn't you know I wasn't like Al or you know uh, who was the second batch it was Al and Charlie and all of those guys I was kind of like the extra dude and I think Vernon spent a little bit of time coming through it. He might have came through a, in a couple of times, not, I don't remember doing any sessions up there with him, but I think he did do some stuff during that kind of after. I was kind of out of that orbit already.
0: And Alfonio Timms, if that's not a familiar name, that's not surprising to the audience because he... He passed very early. Yeah, really early.
1: I guess he passed in 81. He was really a unique guy and he was kind of like this meteoric Figure that kind of rose quickly, and if he had survived, he would have been a major name in the jazz world, but he kind of passed too soon to make that happen. And it was an interesting thing, he had the greatest taste in mentors. As I said, you know, he was mentored by Ornette, by so we used to go up there and we rehearsed in Ornette's loft and spent a lot of time there.
0: And this was where at that time?
1: uh I guess Ornette oh, no, was still on Prince Street at that point. Yeah, I guess that was just where we were. And uh, I guess, you know, Ar- uh, Alfonso was a very volatile personality. So I-, I guess him and Arnett had the inevitable, hey, you blah, 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 blah. And then I kind of didn't hear from him for a few months. And then he called me to come to rehearse at this uh, place called Westbeth on the west side of Manhattan. And I'll never forget, we were in there rehearsing, you know. We we're setting up to rehearse and this old dude comes in. And the old dude sits there for, like, the rehearsal, and then afterwards he asks us a few questions and blah, blah, blah. But at some point, I get introduced to the old dude, and Afonia's like, hey, Melvin, I want you to meet Gil. And I'm realizing, oh, this old dude is Gil Evans. So he went from from being mentored by uh, Ornette Coleman to being mentored by Gil Evans, you know. I became friends with the sons. You know, what's up, Miles? What's up, Noah? I talk, ain't seen you guys for a minute. I hope everything's good with y'all, if y'all are listening. Great kids. I mean, and there's a whole side story to that because, you know, it was because of Noah that I found out about the Bad Brains. So there you go. It's wow. kind of like, so the, the jazz thing led to the punk rock thing through this weird other angle. So, but And Gil Evans was, uh, he was just an open channel. I, oh, Gil was an amazing dude, man. I mean, you know, I could, you know, you could... Once you were in his orbit, I mean, he was an open channel. I mean, I used to call him and ask him about music and stuff, and he, would, you know, he would talk. You know, once once you were in that thing, it's kind of like it was a lot of information to be gotten. And uh, as I said, Alfonia, you know, did learn a lot, and he did combine these two elements: the what he learned from Ornette and what he learned from uh, Gill into this real interesting uh, melange of. In a way, similar to what Shannon was doing, but in a way, totally different, because he was also very influenced by blood. I mean, I know Alfonia because literally the first band I was ever in was with Alfonia. And then I hadn't seen him for years. And it was funny because I was doing this reggae gig in this weird club in Tribeca back when Tribeca was like no man's land. Right, right. And uh and I'd broken, you know. We broke for breaking, and you come strolling in with, you know, his super beautiful girlfriend. <laughs> and uh, uh, he's like, "Hey, Melvin, what you doing?" I said, uh, uh, "Yeah, I'm playing. With, I'm playing with this guy. I don't know if you might have heard of him. He's drummer named Ronald Shannon Jackson." And he's like, "Oh right, man, I'm playing with James Blood Omer. And in terms out he was James, he was Blood's second guitar player at that time. So we hooked back up, and you know, so, so that was the other side of that. Uh, so the this digression is to say that yeah, I was, you know, I am basically one of the hormonal guys in a certain way, but I'm pretty much the only one who, other than Shannon and Byrne, of course, who brought me in in the first place. Byrne Nicks. Burn Nicks. Uh, and that is, that's a whole story, too, of how I ended up. Go that. on, <laughs> go on. Well, uh, there used to be this guy named Adrian Day who had this band called Band of Music and I was in this band with with Adrian before a few months. Adrian was playing trap drums in the band and I was in Adrian's band for a few months before I found out that he was actually, his main instrument was actually percussion and he actually had been playing percussion in prime time. And it turns out that this crazy guitar player with all the snide jokes that had been you know, I'd right. been in the band with for three or four months, was you know, Burn Nix, who was a guitar player in those records, which is ironic enough because I actually had the Dancing in Your Head album in the house and I really loved it. I listened to it, but I guess I never bothered to read the credits for the record. I guess not <laughs> because uh, I don't think Adrian's on the record, but obviously Burn is on the record, yeah. So and and Shannon Jackson and right. Shannon Jackson, but uh, it hadn't got to Shannon yet, it was still that uh point. So one day I'm up there rehearsing, you know, we rehearsed, and after rehearsal. Well, that band played all like standard. We played like real book songs, and it was kind of like you know jazz for whatever that was. And after rehearsal one day, Brent says, "Hey, man, you know, I got this uh this music. I want you to take a look at it." He pull out this chart. It's a uh, written all weird. I'm kind of like, "How am I supposed to play this?" So I kind of looked at it and I kind of did whatever it was I did. And he, Burns said, hey, that was great. I think you can play Har He said, this is some of my friend's music, uh, you know, and he brought me to meet Shannon, and then I ended up in the band, which, you know, doing stuff with him, and that's how that happened. And, uh, you know, in a similar way, when I first met Ornette, it was a similar kind of situation. I remember very well the first time playing with Alphonia there. It was me, It was just a trio, me, Alphonia, and drummer who one day i will see again and his name will come back to me because it's long since slipped in a really great turkish drummer he moved back to germany anyway the three of us played up in ornette's loft and it was literally the three of us just playing like ah, right for you know whatever 40 a whole set like 45 minutes 50 minutes and we stopped and the first thing ornette says literally is melvin how did you learn how to play like that and I kind of looked and I said, I don't know. That's just what I do, you know. Right. It's like there's no, you know. And that was basically all Arnett ever said
0: to me about music. <laughs> but you were, uh, I assume that was a good thing. Yeah, because, you know, it's <laughs> you were, like. You were anointed.
1: Pretty much kind of like, you know, it's kind of like, okay, I knew what the heck to do, you know. And then he kind of, sh- you know, he I won't say that that's the only thing he ever. I should rephrase that. He never gave me any directions. Try this. Try that. Basically, he kind of explained to me, to the best of my my version of what harmonology was, which I'm sure if you sat down ten people in the room who were, had it explained to them by Arnett, they would tell you ten different things. But anyway, he basically broke me broke it down to me how to read his charts, and we would rehearse, and I would play, and that would be pretty much. You know, I would just kinda do what I thought worked with what he had written and that was pretty much what it was. You know. So you were playing you were playing with Ornette? Well, you know, time. I was Ornette had these vocalists that he used to work with. He had uh Roberta, Rebecca, what a Roberta something. And then uh Mari. So I would usually do the things with with the vocalists. And uh I guess uh Charnette's dad, uh Charles Moffat played drums some of the times. And uh it Would be Charlie the other ornet the other uh, primetime guitar player Charlie Ellerby, or I think Brandon actually played at some point Ross might have actually came up to a couple of rehearsals and uh aura would be might have been Donato might have played a couple of times, but people you know the
0: everybody who was in the, that orbit that was in New York at that time you know we're talking to Melvin Gibbs and uh we're we're taking a beautiful side trip down uh yeah. Ornette Coleman Boulevard. Yeah, and I, we'll we'll bring it back
1: we'll, to to, to yeah. Shannon <laughs> we'll Stranded Street in a second. <laughs> uh... All of this is to say that, uh, yeah, this I mean you can't really talk about Shannon's music without talking about Ornette. Yeah. I mean, basically we rehearsed at Donardo's house when we first started. You know, I mean, I remember I was playing through Jamal Adin's bass amp like yeah. you know the the first three
0: months. So right. it was, and uh, but it, let, me, let me ask you, yeah, because we're on this and i've always i don't know where i got this idea in my head that uh, thought that ornette's music is incredibly demanding of bass players in particular
1: it is and it isn't you know it's kind of like you have to be on top of your thing but he's he doesn't i my experience and this isn't just me because i've watched him you know work with some of the other guys he he expects you to be on top of your stuff. I'll use that word. Right. So he doesn't really give a lot of direction to the bass players. The bass players are kind of like, I guess it's kind of like the way Pete Cozy was in Miles' band, where pretty much the free safeties. It's kind of like, okay, you know what to do, just do it. And But having said that, yes, you have to be on top of your stuff, and he, the bass players are consistently great musicians, even now down to, like, Tony and, you know... uh, Al, who's one of the most incredible bass players around, you know, so he, he, de- he,
0: he, And he, he's been, keeps been doing out. that gig for going on 40 years. Yeah. Well, has it been 40? Has it been Go, a long He's ass? getting <laughs> close. Oops. I'm sorry. I he, hope there's a seven second delay there. I'm trying to be nice. <laughs> he's getting close. But, um, I mean, that's one of the most, I was thinking about this as one of the most remarkable musical relationships I know of. And Tony Falango is much more recent, but yeah. fantastic. Well, you know, it's funny when we were kids, I mean, I
1: remember basically being a kid, you know, in Brooklyn and there were, you know, there weren't that many bass players that the other bass players were like, uh, that dude is that dude. (laughs) And basically there's a very short list, you know, of one of whom became extremely famous, which is Marcus Miller. One of the other guys on a very short list was Al. Al was like the guy everybody in New York knew about was like the most amazing dude of the dudes. You know? And he's, you know, you listen to
0: him play, now he's playing piccolo, he's still playing amazing stuff, he's an incredible dude. I wanna circle back to another side road. All, all roads are good roads. Yeah. They all, we're all gonna land in the same place. You were talking about that another kind of shared scholarship learning pedagogy that went on when you guys were coming up, and um, the uh, the teaching and sharing of culture. Who were some of the teachers? I'm wondering if it's anybody any of us might be or should be familiar with. Well, the, the
1: you know, there was two. At, at I went to the Muse in Brooklyn. I didn't really go to Jazzmobile, which is where the other guys went, because it was up in Harlem, and I, I don't remember what the context was. There must have been some church thing or something I was still you know still living with my parents then, and they were pretty demanding on that end uh, but in Brooklyn the acoustic bass player was Reggie Workman right the electric bass player was this woman named Miss Lucy I don't even remember Miss Lucy's actual real first name but Miss Lucy taught all of us in Brooklyn you know and her husband was Larry Lucy, who played guitar for Count Basie. Yeah. And she was an electric bass player. And there's an interesting tradition of these women electric bass players. Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to Mega Ever College in Brooklyn, and the person who was the head of this j- jazz department was this woman, Edna Edette, who played electric bass in an all-women's jazz band. And there's pictures of her playing like a Fender, which means... and. She actually brought her bass to uh, school a couple of times, so I can play. it And it's like the first year Fender. It's one of those bases right. so that's probably worth like twenty thousand right. dollars now. Yeah. And uh, so there's a tradition of women playing bass, and they
0: pat. You know, somehow I got a little bit of that mm-hmm. as well. I'm wondering something comes to mind. This is a funny sidebar. Um, the last. Conversation I had with Shannon. I went to see him in the hospital. And, uh, you know, we were talking about all kinds of different things. And I asked him a question kind of off the cuff. I was thinking about you guys in this period of time, and maybe I didn't phrase the question quite the way I meant it. I asked him, How did you know when you found somebody who fit with what you were trying to do? And, he sort of answered the question, but you know, we're talking about 20 different things and we never quite finished it. I didn't think much more about it. And he called me, called me that night and he said, I thought about what you asked me. I have an answer for you. Come back tomorrow and I'll tell you what it, what, what it is. I said, okay. And uh, I went back to see him. I didn't realize it was going to be the last time I was going to see him. It was the Wednesday before I think he left town and the Thursday, went back to Fort Worth and uh this was less than a week before we got the news that he'd passed and I went back and he told me that the one thing that all you guys had in common was the church and I did not expect that at all that was Mm -hmm. not not the answer I was expecting at all when I asked that question and um he talked about that at some length and talked about his experience. His mother had been church organist and pianist and the times going to, you know, Wednesday night rehearsals and uh, sitting literally at her feet and just mm-hmm. absorbing that music in his bones as a little kid. And he was talking about Mingus, Wednesday night prayer meeting and all that. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, wondering if that strikes a chord for you. Well, you know, my church situation was a little bit different than that
1: because, you know, my dad, my family, and my dad was kind of like pioneer. I mean, when we moved, when I was a small child, we lived in Bedford-Stuyvesant, which, ironically enough, is now starting to look more like the neighborhood I moved to afterwards. But when we hit third grade, we moved to Flatbush, which was then heavily Jewish, heavily Irish, slightly Italian, And basically, when we moved to Flatbush, we were the second African-American family on our block. And it was pretty much that kind of like my dad is going to insert himself where he's half wanted, half not wanted experience. And it was the same thing with the church. The church that we joined, which is King's Highway United Methodist Church, is now uh, probably 95 percent you know, black, mostly West Indian. And I think they might even have, if they don't have black preacher now, they've had. But when we went there, we were the first ones. <laughs> so A little different. Yeah, so, with, you know, and that church experience is a little different. Having said that, we spent a lot of time in relatives' churches. I have relatives who uh, run the music program on one of the churches on One Hundred Twenty Fifth Street. I have uh you can go to different churches in Harlem and you will see like plaques from Gibbs and stuff, you know what I mean? There's a lot of I have a bunch of preachers in the family and stuff. So that's kind of like one of the one of the family careers that I didn't follow, haven't yet. <laughs> well, you never know, right? <laughs> I mean, actually I seriously considered seminary when I was in high school, you know, but I just I wanted so to have fun.
0: <laughs> there know? is a, a line. There, yeah, yeah. There is a line there. Yeah. And Shannon wasn't just talking out of the blue. The no. way it struck me, it yeah. struck me as kind of out right. of the blue.
1: Well, you know, it's, it's really, I, I look at it You, you know, it's a question of believing in something bigger than yourself and uh, figuring out how to tap into that, you know. And I think that that's something that most good music has in common. I mean, you can, in the context of America, you do it in, through spirituality. America is a much more religious country than most countries. Well, then most countries in Europe, for sure. I don't know about the rest of the world. So that's a thing in this in this society. And, it's, and the thing, I mean, it must be said, I mean, the one part of African-American culture that was actually the least tainted, other than the fact that, you know, some would argue that Christianity itself was a taint. But that space that people had on Sundays was like free space. So people could were able to keep the cultural things going in a certain kind of way. They were able to keep certain knowledge going in a certain kind of way. And that has been passed down. And uh, even within the context of, you know, how I experienced the church, it was always about a free space, you know, as the neighborhood started to change and the the complexion of the people in the congregation started to change, we know, you know, it was, you know, that was part of the process of confronting that and everybody learning from each other, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, We are talking with Melvin Gibbs. You're listening to WKCR-FM New York. I'm Mitch Goldman. We call this show Deep Focus. Now you know why. Our deep (laughs) focus tonight is Ronald Shannon Jackson, a fantastic band leader, composer, drummer, whose music Melvin was a big part of and and is a big part of Melvin. Yes, for sure. And uh, we've got some spectacular, astonishing... Live recordings. Yes, you do. Nobody knew these even existed. Funny thing is, a lot of this stuff just emerged out of the ether with the news of Shannon's passing, that people, I mean, just all these experiences that people had and memories that people had uh, came to the fore, and along with that, a bunch of fantastic, really thrilling recordings to be able to listen to. This is remarkable. remarkable. I agree. I was pretty thrilled listening to it. It's funny listening
1: to that stuff because, you know, I remember back when in my own naive way I was kind of like, okay, this band is really going to, quote, make it, unquote. This band is going to be a serious band. And, you know, for whatever reason it didn't reach – the sort of commercial heights, but listening to the music now, I'm. I, first of all, I understand why it didn't reach the commercial heights, but I also understand why I was so fanatical about being a part of the experience. There's such a depth of music in that music that is like pretty amazing. I mean, the music really holds up well. It's it's like when you think about this as '80s music and think about the other stuff that came out at that time that when you listen to it, you're just kind of like, oh, come on, guys, you know, it's like, really? But this thing, you listen to it and you're like, wow, there's a whole bunch of stuff in here that I was not expecting and whole ways
0: of referring to music that is really unique, you know? Along those lines, let me (laughs) suggest to, to the listener, do what you can where you are in your mind to imagine that you are surrounded by, I mean, I don't know how full the roundhouse was that night. The place holds a couple thousand people, I think. Um, But imagine that you're in that kind of environment and responding to this music in the moment. And I say this in light of the fact that the records don't quite sound like this, not quite this level of energy. And I remember being in the studio with Shannon one time and You know, we'd been out on the road, and the band had been playing these tunes. And he, like, pulled the throttle way back in the studio. And I was kind of disappointed, you know? I was like, why don't you do the thing like you, you know, do it? And he said, people can't handle this. They're listening at home by themselves. They can't. They can't get to that. That's not possible. They got that. No, no. We got to, which I really appreciate in a certain sense as a, producer, I mean, I'm still kind of wish that he'd let it rip. rip. And there's no question that in the live environment, the band totally let it rip. But uh, I say that this, I don't know if this, what this sounds like to you, if you're familiar with this music or if you're not familiar with this music, this is, you know, you got to kind of like strap in before you, before you turn this loose. And I I don't want anybody to get, you know, whiplash or (laughs) eyelash or, Backlash or frontlash. I don't want anybody to get damaged, you know. So if you're driving, pull over to the side of the road <laughs> and turn it up loud. And uh, why don't we play a little bit more from this set and then come back. You just uh, did a phenomenal job of painting a picture of the things that were going on as this band was coming together. I want to hear how it went from that to what we're going to listen to. Beautiful. So we're going to go back to Chalk Farm Road. The High Street in Camden. And uh, if you haven't been to London, that's okay. But if you have maybe you could picture the Roundhouse uh, venue. I know Jimi Hendrix played there at the Roundhouse. The place has been there for a pretty long time and it's seen a lot of music, and it's still going. And, um, but that night in March of 1983, it was hearing something that it had never heard. This is the Decoding Society. Our guest, Melvin Gibbs, is playing the bass, as is the Reverend Bruce A. Johnson. Maybe we'll talk about that coming up a little bit. Uh, Our fearless leader is drummer, Ronald Shannon Jackson, and we've also got the marvelous company of Henry Scott on trumpet, Zane Massey on all the reed instruments, and Vernon Reed on guitar and guitar synth. And uh, hold tight. Here we go. Here we go. We're off to london on wkcr fm new york it's music from ronald shannon jackson and you gotta love this cd player fell asleep that's awesome (laughs) just rolls out like that yeah <laughs> it's all yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's it that's it you are listening to wkcr and my name is mitch goldman we call this program deep focus we dedicate three hours to the music of one subject through the ears of our guest and uh our guest tonight melvin gibbs and the subject the artist Ronald Shannon Jackson, and we are, we've got some really thrilling unreleased recordings, including that one from the Roundhouse in London in March of 1983.
1: Yeah, yeah so we didn't get to hear if the people were like, ha ah, or like, yes, huh, right. <laughs> what the heck was that? No, I, I do remember we got a good response that day. Because yeah, you know, we were playing well, and the company, you know, the, the band was kind of at its height at that point. It sounds great, you know?
0: Yeah. There, that was another whole other subject. And again, from my side of the stage, mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys were aware of this, there were times when you guys just took the top of people's heads clean off in the audience. I mean, yeah. I remember <laughs> that having that experience, nothing, I, I had a lot of great experiences listening to music, but nothing quite like that. And I know it wasn't just me. There were a lot of people who came to those shows even if they had thought they were gonna, expecting to like the music, if they hadn't heard you guys live, if they were active listeners, you guys had a way of reaching inside our minds.
1: Yeah, that was a great era. I mean, that was the era of visceral music. I mean, now we're in an era of, well, I don't know what era we're in now, but. There was a long era of kind of like very kind of like one step removed, don't get too and don't get too touchy yeah. music, and I think that right. was a response to our
0: era of like okay, we're in your face, we're here, you know right the ironic detachment yeah. the if I were playing reggae, it would sound, sound like, like, like this, this but I'm not so I'm gonna play this <laughs> right
1: and uh, that was that was the era one I mean you had to you said what you meant and you meant what you said for better or worse, so and because of that it would get the same reaction from the people. People would be way into it or, you know, or
0: way into it. (laughs) Yeah, 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 Yeah. Yeah. it was, and and I I know, uh, I know that happened a lot, in particular in Europe. Mm. And, you know, see, I wasn't with you at that time, but I was, I I went the next time around, Mm. and I knew what the level of expectations were. And they were high, they were incredibly high. Yeah, I mean, you know, he
1: had, it was, you know, was, as I was saying, it was the band was kind of addict-speaky. He had, you know, a good set of guys who kind of understood what, at that point, we all kind of understood what he wanted musically, and we understood how to insert our personalities into what he was doing. So it was this weird, well, not weird, it was really like a band. You know, everybody was saying what, everybody was expressing themselves, but they were also expressing, you know, Shannon's
0: vision and stuff. I want to, unpack that a little bit melvin gibbs on the topic of ronald shannon jackson this was a broadcast from november 4th 2013 two weeks and two days after the death of ronald shannon jackson uh the previous program two weeks prior two days after shannon had passed uh wkcr did a memorial broadcast and during that six to nine time slot we had Uh, eric person and roger kramer on the show that episode's also available on the podcast next week will be a program from two weeks after that which was jack DeSalvo was my guest and the following program two weeks later was vernon reed as my guest all of those are being uploaded it's a series of four episodes a total of i think 11 deep focus episodes By all means, take the opportunity to explore. This is episode one of three, podcast one of three of this Melvin Gibbs, November 4th, 2013 date. Okay, you're all caught up. Uh, Come find me over on part two. See you over there.